is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. Imagine having to guess how much taxes you owe. Well, that's a big problem facing cannabis dispensaries in Los Angeles. We'll go in-depth. Will we, should we, get to watch former President Trump's federal trial on TV? And we'll talk to Mike Love from the Beach Boys about rocking and rolling for more than 60 years. And I know that there's something you really want to talk about. Yeah. And we're, and we're, ta- we're not going to talk about it no. now. We'll talk about it later because you've been talking about it all morning. Right, exactly. So we'll talk about it later. And I give I give you a little hint. We had a nerd out with uh, Mike Simpson. Yes, we so did. That, that might give you a clue uh-huh. what it's about. Yeah. Okay, but well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Right now we start with L.A.'s confusing cannabis tax rules. Jared Kylo is a dispensary owner and president of the United Cannabis Business Association. Jared, thanks for being with us. Wow, thanks for the opportunity to speak about this. Really appreciate it. So let's talk about taxes, which is something that most people, when it comes to weed, probably don't really give much thought to unless you happen to own a store that sells said weed. What's the issue with taxes? Well, right now, I mean, the state of California has shifted some of the tax burdens from the kind of the wholesale side to the retail side. So the customer is now seeing after the advertised price, they're seeing somewhere between 35 and 38 percent taxes, which go to excise tax, local taxes and sales tax. So now it's really apparent all those taxes on your receipt in Los Angeles. Um, so the customer is like, wow, I thought I was going to spend $40 on this eighth. And now it's like $58. And like, I didn't know there was going to be this much in taxes. So I think that has been the surprise. And I think what we're talking about today is the surprise of what happened through kind of some legislators last year where we changed where the collection of taxes was going to be. And in doing that, the California Department of Taxing and Fee Administration changed the definition of excise tax to a gross receipts tax. And that came into firm conflict with the gross receipts tax definition locally here in L.A. So what's happened now is the state of California is saying we're the last tax and the and the L.A. Office of Finance is saying, no, 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 we're the last tax. So we're kind of caught up in this tax loop where everyone wants to tax each other's taxes and they're fighting over who is going to be the last tax. And we're left in the middle confused about who's the last tax, how much tax are we charging, and are we really doing a disservice to the customers by adding all these extra taxes to this an is already very, This is very taxing. taxing. This I'm, is very taxing. I'm already tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, if they don't get this fixed, could this spell uh, doom for uh, pot shops in L.A.? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, trying to just find competition is is difficult. I mean, we have an illicit market. We've got surrounding cities that have lower taxes and don't have the same kind of taxing loop that we're kind of caught in. So, yeah, you're looking at probably adding another $150,000 a year in taxes that are just taxing other taxes. So that's the increase that we're dealing with. And we look in L.A., that's about a $33 million increase in taxes that really shouldn't be there because we're taxing other taxes. You know, we've done stories before, and I'm sure you're well aware of it, on the issues facing the legalized cannabis industry. So I guess my question to you is, is it an industry in this state that's destined to fail? 
Currently, right now, if you look at the trend, you've got seven quarters in a row of, of revenue being reduced to the state level. So we're just seeing a slow decline of the legal cannabis industry. And we're also seeing that same increase in the illicit cannabis industry. So it looks like we're getting our lunch eaten by pretty much illicit operators because they can sell products of the same quality for half the price. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Jared Kylo, uh, dispensary owner and president of the United Cannabis Business Association. Right now, though, a new Justice Department report slams the Minneapolis Police Department, saying officers systematically discriminated against racial minorities for years before George Floyd was killed. Elliot Payne is a Minneapolis councilman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How surprised, if you were surprised, uh, were you by this report? At this point, I am no longer shocked when anyone states the facts as we've known them for a very long time. What I'm surprised by is it taking it coming to this, that the Department of Justice has to report these facts for the broader public to believe it. Does it seem to you like this uh, misuse of authority and power from the police force of Minneapolis and also the racial discrimination, is it something that was baked in to... uh, the police force in general, or is it just something that has been there? We've known it was a problem, but no one just ever really did anything to to stop it. I think it's both those things. Uh, you know, I've talked to, about this issue with my father. He is a longtime civil rights activist. He was a Black Panther going back into the 60s and 70s. And we've been fighting police brutalities basically since the beginning. And so... It, it, it's both baked into the model, and I think it's not unique to Minneapolis. I think this is a problem that touches every community across the country. Where do you think the uh, relationship is now between the Minneapolis police, uh, police Department and the people that the police department are supposed to be uh, protecting? We're at a tipping point. There is a lot of gestures towards the types of changes and reforms that that the community wants to see, but uh, we haven't actually demonstrated action in these areas. We have already signed a court-ordered settlement with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, um, which is a significant step for us, but so far we've made a lot of commitments on paper, but the public is still waiting to see what those those commitments look like on the streets of Minneapolis. If and when the police department enters a consent agree with the uh, feds, do you think it will be enough? No, I don't think that's going to be the magic bullet that's going to solve this problem. I think if we think that this is a problem that is solely the solution of the police def- department fixing itself, we're missing the ball here because I think this is a more expansive conversation around race in America and who gets to have the full rights and privileges of being a U.S. citizen. And I think that is a societal question that we need to grapple with that I think we are seeing reflected across a lot of different dimensions in society. Okay, but that is a discussion that almost by definition is going to take quite some time to play out. In the interim, though, uh, what did the people of Minneapolis, uh, what do they expect and what do uh, the, what does the reality seem to be as this plays out with the relationship with the department? Because the discussion that you're talking about is is a, a worthwhile one, obviously, and it's one that needs to happen. But it's not going to be a short one. 
In concrete terms, it looks like some of the work that I was doing before I ran for city council, uh, and that work was helping to launch a dedicated mental health response. Um, we've since launched that team, and it's been really successful, but it's actually heavily cited in the DOJ report that it's inadequately funded and it really needs to be expanded so that we can have the types of first responders that are mental health professionals to take the police out of the picture in those instances. And so I think there's a there's a wide acknowledgement that police are not the best responders in every instance. And I think what it looks like is making sure that we are making the types of deep investments into a comprehensive approach to safety that, yes, includes police when necessary, but also includes other first responders when when appropriate. And I think part of this that I'm hopeful for is a signal that this is a significant investment that is worthwhile for us to make and we can move beyond the rhetoric of funding the police department. Speaking of funding, you know, that was a that was a rallying cry for some uh, to defund the police. And and even though what that really meant was they wanted to reallocate the way monies were spent, at least some of them thought that. Uh, so would counterintuitiveness work here? Uh, maybe the police need more funding for better training, maybe for longer training and for training in other things like uh, de-escalation and uh, and and also the law. I think the discussion about funding gets a little bit oversimplified because we need to broaden that discussion with what are the outcomes for every dollar that we put into our public safety investments, right? So um, in absolute terms, we talk about how big the budget is for the department, but we need to talk about what kind of outcomes are we getting per dollar? So, you know, for the outcomes that we want, we may need to increase total funding per unit of safety, however you would define that, right? But the level of funding that goes directly to police versus mental health responders versus homeless responders, that's a that's a broader conversation, right? And if we only talk about the funding of one department in this bigger system and in conversation about safety, I think we're we're missing a little bit of the the context and the details. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Elliot Payne, uh, Minneapolis Councilman. And still to come, the Beach Boys, they've been around since the early days of rock and roll. We are going to talk with Mike Love about how the band has been able to hang 10 for so, so long. That's a surfing reference, isn't it? It is. Uh, and I don't surf. <laughs> I don't either, but I'm smart. I don't even know what a surfboard looks like. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. It's like a giant tongue depressor. <laughs> That's exactly what Isn't it is. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, right now, though, the federal case against former President Trump's obviously generating a lot of media and public interest. And this is raising questions about whether cameras should be allowed in the courtroom for this high-profile case. Gabe Roth is executive director of Fix the Court, a nonprofit group that advocates for more open and accountable courts. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I got to confess, I I see compelling arguments for both sides. Uh, one that uh, if this trial, if and when it ever happens, uh, it could unfairly prejudice the viewing public one way or the other if we see everything that's going on inside. The other argument against is that uh, former President Trump, as he is known to do sometimes, 
can spew a lot of misinformation that would then get out there uh, unalloyed until, uh, you know, the prosecution comes back and answers uh, anything that he might bring up. On the other hand, because this is such a high profile case, I can see that maybe the American public should see what's going on in the court. And maybe that would help stop some misinformation. Uh, I take it you uh, you come down on the side of transparency and it's better for us to see it. If so, uh, why? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think that the way most Americans get news now uh, via their the Internet, via their phone apps, social media apps, there is a video component to it that we want to see and we frankly deserve to see. If we see it, we can believe it. And the idea that you would essentially have to filter what goes on in the courtroom through reporters who you know, many are going to be you know, perfectly neutral and unbiased, but we know that's not always the case. It is just kind of ridiculous in this day and age. You know, the rules against putting cameras in the courtroom in federal courts were established in 1946. Cameras are a little bit different now than they were in 1946. They can be, as they have been in many courts, basically the size of a fist and as unobtrusive as wall-mounted clocks. So I think that in order to ensure that a fair trial is happening, and I have no reason to assume that it wouldn't be, but you know, we gotta trust but verify. We gotta see it with our own two eyes. And there, and thankfully, we're at a point now in 2023 where modern technology affords us the ability for that to happen in a non-obtrusive way. You know, uh, I've met a number of uh, judges uh, and other legal types over the years who have said. Oh, the reason why we don't want cameras in the courtroom is because uh, the circus that happened during the O.J. Simpson trial. But that's, uh, yes, the O.J. Canard. I'm right. glad we're still talking about it 30 years later. Yes. Yeah, well, but, but the point I'm, I'm going to make is I covered that case. And where they're wrong is, yes, there was a circus, but it wasn't really in the courtroom. It was outside the courtroom. So it really didn't have anything to do with what was going on inside. Outside, you had different people and factions, people sure. who were supportive of Mr. Simpson, people who were not supportive of Mr. Simpson. But inside the courtroom, it unfolded like like any really high-profile case might unfold. So I always thought that that was a bit of a uh, of a myth. I, I, I agree to a large extent. I do think that, that Judge Ito was a bit in over his head um, from all accounts. I mean, this happened when I was in middle school, so I don't have a great recollection of it but from what i remember it was, it was a lot of uh of uh of, of playing uh, of grandstanding that occurred i think on on both sides but I, in this case you know first of all i think that judge cannon has the capability of of, of, of smacking that down of, of not allowing that to happen uh of, of telling folks to, to, to you know do their job stay in their lane um and there's going to be a lot of pressure on her to do that and to uh have a neutral uh, trial should should it get get to that trial. The other thing is that I think you know if we were, we're looking for a compromise, which my group um, for better or worse always is, there is the option for live streamed audio. It's what the Supreme Court does now. It's what the thirteen federal appeals courts. So right now this is a, this is a trial court. If it goes higher, it go to the eleventh circuit court of appeals based in Atlanta. So there's thirteen of those courts of appeals uh, on the federal uh, level across the country. Every single one of them is live streaming the audio. Of their proceedings and has been since some since the pandemic some like the ninth circuit based in san francisco for the better part of 15 years so you know i think at least the very much if we can't necessarily see it um we know that uh, another thing is that the south florida courtrooms uh already are have the capability of, of live audio they participated in a live audio pilot a couple years ago 
and they have the ability to stream audio to um, rooms outside of the courtroom, uh, like overflow rooms. So I, I think this idea that, you know, if we're too skittish on cameras, which I think in this day and age we shouldn't be, but if that's the case, and at the very least, we know the federal courts are capable of conducting themselves very professionally, very efficiently having a live audio element. And I think that that real-time access would really be a benefit to those of us really, you know, frankly, on both sides of the aisle that are, are, are doubting potentially how this could proceed in an impartial way. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Gabe Roth, Executive Director of Fix the Court. Uh, they advocate for more open and accountable courts. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Not many people are more iconic to Southern California and its image than the Beach Boys. The group has been riding the wave of success for more than 60 years now. And the band is back in Southern California next month performing at the Hollywood Bowl. That's going to be the 2nd, 3rd, and, of course, the 4th of July. How could they not do the 4th of July? With us now is Mike Love, one of the founding members of the Beach Boys. Mike, thanks for coming back with us. Appreciate it. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the air. We're excited about being back at the Hollywood Bowl. The first time we were there was in the 60s. Wow. I remember one time we had Sonny and Cher, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, a Sir Douglas Quintet, uh-huh. and um, um, uh, Neil Diamond. How about that? So I, I got <laughs> so to ask you this, Mike, because every time I hear uh, a Beach Boys tune uh, on the radio, I, there's no way I can turn it off. I mean, there's some songs that, you know, you, you can, but I can't. What is it about the music that uh, is is just so enduring and makes it impossible to turn off? You know, before we became the Beach Boys, my cousin Brian and I would sing together. We'd listen all night to the, to, to, to the radio, uh, listening to the R&B songs and the doo-wop songs and the early rock and roll and stuff. We love the Everly Brothers. But we became fascinated by the four freshmen. And that four-part harmony is what distinguishes the Beach Boys from many other great groups. But, um, yeah, it was it was the love of making those uh, uh, those harmonies together that is the secret ingredient, I think, to the Beach Boys. And, and also the Beach Boys were far, far more important to the history of uh, American and British music than a lot of people realize because of the fact that, uh, you know, you, you guys were coming up at the same time as the Beatles. And there were there was a point at which you were influencing each other. Uh, you guys influenced by the Beatles uh, made Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds influenced the Beatles to continue on and make Sgt. Pepper's. How does it feel to be part of that chain? It's pretty phenomenal. You know, in 1966, Good Vibrations went to number one, and we were voted the top group, the number one group in Great Britain. Number two was the Beatles. So they nobody was more successful than the um, than Paul McCartney and crew. That is true. But we always had their respect, and we had their admiration. I mean, Paul has said that God only knows, which we will do on July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, by the way, at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, was the perfect song. So he's being nothing but kind to us. And we, of course, were fans of what they were doing. Uh, I even did a song called Pisces Brothers, uh, a homage to uh, George Harrison. He and I both had our birthdays at Maharishi's place in Rishikesh, India uh, uh, in, uh, in 1968. When you have the kind of hit songs that you guys had, have really, 
Does it make it more difficult to write new stuff? Because when you do a concert, obviously everybody wants to hear all the hit songs that they they just love. And we would never not do them. You know, California Girls, I Get Her In, Help Me, Rhonda, Good Vibrations, Kokomo. We're going to do them all, of course. But then we'll we'll slide in a couple like the one I just mentioned about the homage. It's called Pisces Brothers. It's a, it's about that time in India when George Harris and I both had our birthdays in 1968 there. And we do other things that, that uh, may not be as well known, uh, like a song called The Warmth of the Sun, which we wrote the night before the early hours of the morning before President Kennedy was taken to the hospital in Dallas. Hmm. So a lot of these things are emotional for us and as well as historical. But we never want to uh, deny the opportunity to perform uh, our biggest hits for, for our audience. Yeah, I've been to a number of Beach Boy concerts over the years, Mike, and it is sort of multi, well, not sort of, it is multi-generational in terms of the audience. Have the audiences changed, though, over the decades? Actually, the audience responses are phenomenal um, with, with all ages uh, getting into our music. I mean, it's it's a miracle, and it's a fantastic, beautiful blessing for us to have our uh, music recognized for more than five decades. That's pretty phenomenal. But I want to add a couple of things about July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, the symphony and fireworks. Ah, yes, the fireworks. Can't beat that. Yeah. That's right, fireworks. <laughs> Uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you something, and this is kind of personal for me because I, I, you know, growing up, music was the thing that kind of saved my life. And I've been into a lot of different kinds of music. Uh, thanks to my uh, dad who passed away recently. He got me into classical music. And from that, I discovered uh, rock. I discovered, you know, the pop, the Beach Boys and the Beatles and all that. And uh, for a long time, I thought the Beach Boys were, you know, uh, they did pop hits in the 60s. I didn't spend a lot of time and attention on them until someone sat me down and forced me to listen to Pet Sounds. And I listened to that album and realized what an important album it was. And it now is, I would put that on the list of the greatest albums ever recorded in the history of recorded music. Uh, why is Pet Sounds so good? What happened when you guys were working on that one that, that made you feel like we're making something different and incredible? Well, the thing is, there are a lot of symphonic um, um instrumentation on that album so it was a departure from simply the drums bass guitar and keyboard that was on most of the recordings up until that time ours and others as well so it was a it was a quite a stretch of in terms of the production value and um so it like for instance sloop john b i originally heard from the kingston trio but brian my cousin brian did this fantastic arrangement of it with this orchestration, along with the, some of the greatest players in, in California, we had really two groups at that point in time, the touring group and the recording group. And my cousin Brian decided in 1964 that he was going to leave the touring group, which we continued on with Carl, Dennis, myself, and Al. And, 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 and um, so it was two different groups, but Brian was able to, you know, spend a lot of time doing, um, doing arrangements and so on so he took extra time and care on good uh, on uh, songs like uh, wouldn't it be nice god only knows luke john b and others on the pet sounds album so mike we want to uh, try a little bit here with yeah. you because if it's okay with you uh because uh, there's a traffic sounder 
that we play. It's huh. like a, a you know a music bed uh, when we do our traffic reports, which are you know on the fifteens, right? On the fives. I should know. <laughs> on the fives. Okay. Uh, and Rob and I have often commented yeah. that it kind of goes on and on, but it, it needs some help. It needs either a good lyric or something. We have a feeling oh, of, let's God. call it love, for yeah. our traffic bed, and maybe you could yeah. improve it. Yeah, maybe you can do. You can give some that sort of Beach Boy touch to it. So, right. are, are you ready, Mike? A, a lyric or a sound. So, we're going to play it for you for a few seconds. You can listen to it and okay. see if it gives you an idea for a lyric that you could add to it. Are you ready? Here, here we right. go. Here Here's comes. our traffic bed. It kind of repeats, you know. Here's your three chords. All right, so Mike, are, are you feeling anything? Is there anything? Is well, there some magic the you can thing add? Think about is KNX is almost as good as sex. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. I, all right, yeah. we're going to get a team of singers to work on that for us. Yeah, and and right. add those lyrics to the traffic bed because exactly. I think that's a winner. That'll get people to listen, <laughs> won't it? <laughs> Maybe do a version of it at one of your concerts. Oh, sure. Sure we will. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mike, at the concert at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, you have a lot of folks with you, right? Yes. John Stamos is going to be all over the stage. He right. loves to play drums with us. We back him up on a song called uh, Forever that my cousin Dennis wrote that, that he did on Full House when Uncle Jesse got married. And also on July 4th, uh, uh, our friend... Um, Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray is going to be there as well. So we are going to have a lot of fun on stage, I'm telling you. You know, I think as long as some of the core guys are still around, the Beach Boys will continue. Do you see uh, a Beach Boys continuing far into the future as as more people coming on and, and kind of recreating and keeping that sound alive? Uh, we do. We love the music. Um, we're obsessed with recreating those harmonies as close as humanly possible to the recordings. And it's wonderful to see the audience response. That's really the thing that motivates us to go out and perform. So uh, when you see 17,000 people jumping up and down and singing along to your songs, it's pretty, pretty unbelievably great. You know, it's a blessing. I'm curious, uh, Mike, when you hear a Beach Boys tune on the radio, do you sing along with it? Uh, in, internally, in my head, yeah, I do. <laughs> but and, not out and that's loud. What I, I, I often listen to, uh, you know, like um, Shotgun Tom Kelly on 60s on 6 on Sirius to see if he's going to play one of our songs. Tom, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> Huge fan of ours. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you have a favorite Beach Boys song? Uh, Good Vibrations is right up there, but it's hard to knock uh, Kokomo. And then there's, it's about what mood you're in. Yeah. In My Room is Beautiful. The Warmth of Sun is amazing. Um, You know, uh, up-tempo songs like Surfing USA and I Get Around and Fun, Fun, Fun. Nothing wrong with those. No, nothing is wrong with those. Nothing is wrong with those, Mike. Nothing is wrong with that. Mike Love of the Beach Boys, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you and an honor as well for someone who's a fan of music like I am. Uh, Going to be at the Hollywood Bowl July 2nd, 3rd, Third, and 4th. And, 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 and thank you very much from the bottom of our hearts for improving or trying to improve our traffic sound. <laughs> yeah, <in my>. Thank you. <laughs> I think in my, 
be catchy and, and, and really cause a, a kind of a stir in L.A. There it just go. might. <laughs> All right. A stir it will be. Uh, thank you so much. That's uh, KNX In-Depth for uh, today. We're going to be back Monday at 1 p.m.